Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, as we are going to pick up our series that we've been in the last few weeks or so. And just so this isn't a distraction, uh, my microphone might go off and it might not work, and that's okay. We'll just use this pulpit mic. Um, but if it does, it's all right. We'll, we'll figure it out. Um, but anyway, yeah, we'll pick up uh, in chapter 2 of Philippians, uh, beginning in verse 19, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter to verse 30. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, and I ask that you pay careful attention to the reading of God's word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may, be, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And ask the Lord to bless his word. Our Father and God, we thank you that you speak to us. God, we thank you that even through such sinful, broken people as me, as ministers of the gospel, that you can still speak words of life to your people. And so, God, we ask the Holy Spirit that you are quickening our, 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 our hearts and our minds that we might see, that we might know, that we might believe the truth that you have revealed to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we pick up our series here in chapter 2, I want to just give us a quick review of what we've seen so far. Uh, I think that that will help us understand the flow of Paul's thought here as we end chapter 2. And as we've said multiple times, right, Paul's writing this letter from prison, and he's writing to the Philippian church, who Paul says back in chapter 1, is also suffering for Christ. So Paul's suffering Philippian church is suffering for Christ. Um, and yet, in the midst of that, we've talked about somewhat at length uh, that Paul is urging them to be unified as they stand together against the opposition that they are facing. So in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of uh, the persecution that they face, unity is key, right? unity among believers. And Paul tells them how they do that. So, be unified as you stand firm in op uh, against opposition. Well, how are you supposed to do that? Well, he tells, tells them at the beginning of chapter 2 that we are unified through humility and helpfulness. That's kind of how we can break it down. Humility, thinking of others more highly than ourselves, and helpfulness by looking to the needs of others. 
that's how we pursue unity. That's how unity is attained. And again, we've said this before, that we do that not because, well, we do that primarily because that's what Christ did for us. Right? He humbled himself. He sacrificed himself. Why? Well, to put our needs, forgiveness, redemption, to put our needs over his equality with God. Right? He humbled himself for our sake. And then here in this section, beginning in verse 19, Paul talks about his plans for the church in Philippi, uh, specifically his plans to send Timothy uh, and Epaphroditus to come see them, minister to them. And part of the reason for their inclusion here, part of the reason why I wanted to recap really quickly, is yes, Paul's telling them to expect them. These are the plans, so you know what's happening. But really, I think that their inclusion here is because they are examples of what Paul has just been laying out. So, Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of the sacrifice, of the service that Paul has been commending to the Philippians. So, just as Christ did this, well, here are two men that have done the same type of thing. Sacrifice, humility, service. Those are the qualities that Paul highlights about them. And so, he begins with talking about Timothy in verse 19. Now, we know that Timothy is from Lystra, where he joined Paul during his second missionary journey. We know that Timothy's mother was Jewish and that his father was Greek. And we also know that Timothy received two of the pastoral letters, two of the pastoral epistles from Paul. And history has it that Timothy actually became the bishop of the church in Ephesus. So that's what we know. Basically, Timothy is a minister of the gospel. That's what Paul says in verse 22. And the key here for Paul, right, regarding Timothy, he's coming. That's the first part. But the key is verse 20. It's the why Paul is sending Timothy. He's sending Timothy to them because of his genuine concern for their needs or for their welfare or for their well-being. So that's what Timothy As a servant of the gospel, you could say as a minister, that's what characterizes him. Or for Paul, that's what qualifies Timothy for the job. He genuinely cares about those whom he serves. That's the only thing really that Paul highlights. That's the quality about Timothy in verse 20. And I think that gives us an important insight into what ministry is. Or... What is most important about being a minister of the gospel? What would you say? If you could pick the quality that you want in your minister, what would you choose? Well, here, Paul highlights service, basically. Concern for others. Service to others. I mean, notice how Paul doesn't say anything about how wonderful a teacher Timothy is. Teaching, preaching the gospel is very important to Paul. But he doesn't say anything about that. Nor does Paul mention that Timothy is such a devout, such a godly man. Those are two good things, preaching, being able to preach the gospel effectively, being a godly man. But the only quality that that, that matters, it seems to Paul, is that Timothy is genuinely concerned for the people. That he genuinely wants to serve them. That's the idea of concern for their welfare. 
serves them so that they have it better, do better. And that's what makes him an ideal choice of a minister of the gospel. And I think that if you broke that down to ministry, I think that's the main quality, or that's the main qualification that a person must have when it comes to leadership in the church. Being a servant. Right? That's what being a minister of Christ is. Fundamentally, a servant. Right? That's what Paul says back in verse 7 of chapter 2. He says, he says it about Jesus. That Jesus became nothing, taking on the form of what? Of a servant. And Paul ends that, uh, that section in 9 through 11 talking about Jesus as the king. So this is the king that we're talking about. That's what the leader of God's people does. He serves. And I was talking with my, my younger sister the other day, uh, talking about transfer ordination and all of that, what goes into that. Um, and I brought up church government and how I had to be examined on our form of church government. Um, and she, you know, she grew up in the church, so she knows things, but I don't know how much she knows or what she knows. But when she, when she heard that, just that comment about me being ordained or having to take an exam in church government. Um, She said that, well, that sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, right? Church government. How or why would the church have a government? The church isn't a state. And when you think about that, who's the church governed by? Who should the church be governed by? God, right? The Bible, correct? And I thought it was as obvious that everybody knew you had a church government, um, but I thought it was an interesting comment because I think we typically think of government as the people in charge, right? The people who make up the rules or the people who enforce the rules or the people that are allowed to break the rules. Now, in modern times, politicians, people who work in the government, politicians mainly, they might say they work for the people, Right? That they have the people's interest in mind, which that might be true in some cases, or that might be true in theory. But it's always interesting to me how politicians get so rich looking out for the interests of others. It's strange how that works. Uh, because, let's face it, most of the time, what are governments most, uh, more concerned with? Your well-being? Probably not. Most of the time, governments are concerned with power, control. That's really what a government wants. Control over the people, power over the people that they are supposed to help or that they're, in theory, helping. And that type of thing happens in the church as well. Leaders abusing their power, or more about power and control than anything else. So, on one level, when we talk about church government... That can sound like us talking about who is in charge of the church. Let me ask you a question. Who is in charge of the church? We have elders, right? Pastors, the session. They're in charge, right? Well, what does it mean to be in charge? What does it mean to be in a position of authority when it comes to the church? Is that leadership different? How is that leadership different? Well, as you know, obviously, the leadership of a church, the elders, the pastors, they're not the ones in charge as we typically think of what it means to be in charge. Meaning, it's not power, 
It's not control that the leaders of God's people are supposed to care about or that we're supposed to wield. The leaders of the church are supposed to be the servants of God's people. That's what it's called. That's what the calling to be a minister of a minister is. He said, service. And Jesus tells his disciples this in the Gospels. Right? He says how it usually works, like among the Gentiles, let's say, is that those in charge rule over those underneath them. He says they lord it over them. That means they have the power. They have the control. You have to do what they say. That's how leadership, that's how government works. But Jesus, he makes it clear that that is not how it is to be with his followers. To be a leader is to really serve. It's the role of serving, of looking to others' needs before your own. Again, that's what it means to be a minister. You can go get a master's of divinity. You can know a lot about theology. That doesn't make you a minister. We are supposed to be servants to you all where we care about your well-being. So, for instance, you need someone to study and learn God's word so that they, we, can serve you by teaching it to you. And some people have a problem with that because they think, oh, the pastor's up there and he's just telling us what to do. Why is he above us? Why is he wearing that silly robe? The point isn't that you can't understand or study God's word for yourself. Of course you can. You have the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. It's just that, well, you have a job. You have a life, a different calling. So it's helpful for you to have someone whose profession or whose life calling is studying God's word. And on the flip side, for ministers, we're not supposed to do that. Study, read, write, preach. We don't do that for ourselves. At least, we're not supposed to. We don't study God's word to get you to act or think the ways that we want. Although, that happens quite frequently in the church. Where, God, where, where ministers, where pastors use God's word to further their own control over the people. Even if, it's, even if it's just control of what they think, what they can think. But that's bad. Ministers are supposed to do it study God's word, to serve y'all, to be helpful to you, to help you understand what God says. So we as ministers, we enter into God's service by entering into your service. And part of the point is that elders and pastors, they're not the authority in the way we typically think of authority. I mean, in the church, God's word is the authority. That's what you submit to. It's not to me or to Dr. Rogan or to the elders that you submit to when it comes to that. As elders, teachers, we're supposed to learn it, study God's word, so that we can communicate it to those we're ministering to. But we do that in order for all of us to better submit our lives to God and to his word, not to our denomination, not to this session. That's not who you submit finally to. The pastor is doing his work faithfully, then we will all submit to God and to his word more correctly. So the role of a minister is to be a servant of the people. That's what Paul highlights about Timothy in verse 20. That's what he cares about. That's what makes Timothy the best man for the job, his concern for others. Again, 
Paul doesn't care how good of an orator he is, or how many published works he has, or his reputation in the larger community, or how smart he is, or how well he communicates. That's all fine for ministers to be and to do, but that's not what's important. Truly caring for the people, wanting to serve them, that's what a minister must be and do. And verse 21, that reveals that this kind of minister is rare. Notice what Paul says. All. Not some. All. They all preach and teach the gospel seeking their own interests. That's what characterizes most ministers. The church, God's word, sacraments, preaching and teaching. For them, it's merely a job. Pays the salary, gets what I need to get out of life, but don't really care about the well-being of people. Now, if people are doing well, the church is doing well, then great. But if not, too bad. Paul says, they all do that. And I think as I was going uh, over this this past week, I think this was more of a sermon to ministers, to myself, because as someone who is in ministry, what Paul says in verse 21, that's a very frightening thing. Because I'd like to think I seek the interest of others and of Christ, but at the same time, I know that I am selfish, I know that I am lazy, I know how sinful I am. So what if I am really seeking my own interests when it comes to the ministry? It's not like, I mean, you might have these megachurch pastors, I won't say any names, that are so worth $55 million or whatever. They might be clearly seeking their own interest. But then there's the ones that, I don't know, maybe my desire to preach and to teach is really more about me. Maybe I want you guys to think well of me, to think I'm smart. How can I be sure that I am genuinely concerned for others? How can I be sure that I am genuinely concerned for the things of Christ? Because that's what we're ultimately dealing with here. Ministers are ordained and set apart to deal with the things of Christ, the truths, the mysteries, the realities of God. That's what we're tasked to handle. That sounds like a pretty big thing. And I think that is something that ministers often forget. Either they don't begin knowing that, that the the, the profession, ministry, is really dealing with the things of Christ. Either they don't begin knowing that, or they forget that the longer they stay in ministry. The more you do it, the more years stack on years, the job just becomes a job. I'm no longer concerned with the things of Christ, serving them to the people I minister to. I'm more concerned about what I get out of the profession, or... I'm more concerned with my comfortability in the ministry. I think that happens to a lot of people, where the Bible is no longer sharper than any two-edged sword. It's no longer able to pierce through flesh and bone right to the heart. So I'd better be careful how I use it. I'd better be careful what I say. Instead, the Word of God can become kind of like a blunt plaything that I can wield with no real risk. I think it's a real temptation for ministers. So Paul says, to find themselves seeking our own interests. And that's one of the reasons that James, 
right? He says that not all should aspire to be ministers or teachers of the gospel. Well, why not? Why wouldn't you want to do that? Well, it's a much higher standard to be dealing with the things of God, to be speaking through the mouth or, or God speaking through us, to deal with the mysteries of Christ. That is a heavy, heavy burden. And to do so flippantly or to do so from a selfish motive will only increase the judgment that we face, so James says, and even worse, it will increase the harm that we cause Christ's body. Because that's what Paul says. He links Timothy's concern for the people, in verse 20, with the interests of Christ himself, in verse 21. Meaning, for Paul, the two are connected. A minister's concern for the people is directly related to his seeking the interests of Christ. If you are genuinely concerned for the people, that's a sign you're seeking the things of Christ. Because Paul is clear throughout the New Testament that the people who believe in Jesus, the people who give their allegiance to Jesus as king, they're not distantly related to their master. Right? Paul's clear that Christ and his followers are intimately bound up together. Right? He's with them. They are his body. So to serve Jesus and to serve his people are the same thing. For Timothy, to care for the church is to care for Christ. And to do harm to Christ's body, his people, is to do harm to Christ himself. And that's why you shouldn't aspire to be a teacher or preacher. Because we have that ability. When we get up here, that's the risk that we take. Doing harm to Jesus himself. That's why not everyone should aspire to be a teacher. Kind of reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, talking about his ministry. He asks, who is sufficient for these things? Who? Who can rightly handle the things of God? And that's why it's sad and dangerous for a minister to let his guard down. To forget his calling is to Christ as he serves the church. And to do it right... To be sufficient for these things, we need to do it. Ministers need to do it how Christ did it. Again, back to verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2. Christ gave himself for us. He served us. He looked to our interests above his own. And that's what a minister must devote his life to. It's great to know. It's great to learn and to be smart and to be witty. It's great to have people like you and respect you, to have a big church, nice reputation, fine. But a true minister, he cares about the well-being of his people, of God's people. And he will do anything, he'll be anything for that to happen. So Timothy is an example of the humility and the service that each one of us should aspire to and that ministers especially need to cultivate. And then in verse 25, Paul talks about Epaphroditus. And the thing we notice here is that, yes, Epaphroditus is an example of love, uh, of sacrifice, right? How he longs to serve the people in Philippi. He, like Timothy, is an example of Christ's love. But notice what Paul highlights here with Epaphroditus. Right? It's clear that he's had a pretty rough go of it. 
Paul emphasizes that he was ill, that he almost died in verse 26. And then he says that again in verse 30, that he almost died in his service to Christ. That's what Paul wants to emphasize about Epaphroditus. With, with Timothy, it was about his genuine care. With Epaphroditus, it's about what? His illness, his suffering. And the thing that I want to point out here about Epaphroditus is the effect that this has, his illness, his near death, his suffering, the effect that that's had on Paul. I think here at the end of chapter 2, we get a real humanizing picture of the apostle. Because I think, you know, we kind of read through the New Testament, and Paul's kind of this hard-hitting theologian, sovereignty of God, suffering's not that big of a deal, can sound like that. But here I think we get a good image of who Paul is as a person or the things that he goes through. So, for instance, in verse 27, Paul says that the Lord spared him from sorrow, being heaped upon sorrow. So, if Epaphroditus would have died, Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow. My question is, what is this second sorrow that Paul already has? And we get the first sorrow. If Epaphroditus died, that would have been sad, devastating, depressing. But that's just one sorrow. Sorrow upon sorrow. What sorrow is Paul talking about? And remember, this is in context of what we've seen so far about Paul rejoicing. Paul, in chapter 4, content with what's happening to him. Remember, he talks about rejoicing all through this letter. What's this sorrow that would be added to if his close friend died? Is it prison? Is it not being able to see those he loves in Philippi? Maybe. But the question is, is Paul miserable when he writes this? What's the sorrow? Again, shouldn't he, as he says all over Philippians, just rejoice and be thankful, be content, don't worry? Shouldn't he cast his cares upon God? I mean, in verse 28, he says he hopes they receive him with joy so that he is less anxious. So Paul's anxious. Doesn't he say in chapter 4 to not be anxious about anything? And going back to chapter 1, why would he be so sorrowful if Epaphroditus died? What do you say in chapter 1? Isn't it better to be with the Lord? Isn't that better? Wouldn't Epaphroditus' death be gain? Right, that's what he said in chapter 1. And I think you read this carefully, you get a picture of Paul He's sorrowful, he's anxious, he's worried. I think that's an interesting view we get into the life of the Apostle. Amidst all of his encouragements to face hardships, uh, the hardships of life with joy, with contentment, with hope, right? knowing that Jesus is Lord, knowing that our lives are bound up in his, all of that is true, and yet, well, life is still hard still sorrowful. We still get anxious. And my point is, I think it's a reminder to us of the tension in life that we face, especially the tension that Christians face. Right? Because we have this hope. Right? We have this foundational hope in the resurrected Lord Jesus, who defeated death and hell, who reigns in heaven, and who all humanity will one day give homage to. That's our hope. And in that hope, we can face anything. 
And yet, the picture of Paul shows us that that doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that your hope in Christ, that doesn't mean we won't succumb to grief, anxiety, worry, or illness, like with Epaphroditus. That's still very much a part of our experience. I think it's a good reminder, Christians, Paul, we're not Stoics. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that he ordains what, what goes on. But we don't act like the problems that we face really aren't problems. Or that the problems that we face don't matter. Or that they don't really hurt. I think, I think we all know people like that, Christians like that, who refuse to call suffering suffering. Say, now, God's sovereignty and all that. I mean, just think about what Jesus experienced. When you think about the Son of God becoming man, what he suffered, we know, Paul says back at the beginning of chapter 2, we know Jesus had to suffer the torment of the cross. And what was he suffering there? He was suffering God's divine wrath. And that's something, by the way, that we can't imagine having to go through. We don't have to go through that. That's why he did it. So not only did Jesus suffer God's divine wrath, he also suffered in the exact same ways that we do. He suffered betrayal. Betrayal by his closest friends, his closest friend. He suffered and grieved at the death of those he loved, like Lazarus and John 11. He suffered, I don't even know what to call it, anxiety, fear, doubt in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hebrews 5 says he offered up his prayers with loud cries and tears. The Son of God, scared, lonely, anxious. Paul's experience of sorrow, anxiety, sadness. And he doesn't pretend otherwise. And the point that I'm drawing out here is it's not a sign that you are doing things wrong. Or maybe to say it this way, it's not a sign that you don't believe or that you don't have enough faith just because you're having a hard time of it. If life is hard, if you're suffering, it doesn't mean you don't have enough faith. If life is hard, if you're anxious, if you're sorrowful, if you're ill, if you have been betrayed in a relationship, if you're going through something like that, what should you think? That you've done something wrong? Maybe. But I think something that helps us in those times is know that Christ faced that as well. He went through that. So did the Apostle. The Apostle Paul. Struggling with the same anxieties, the same stress, the same doubts that we have. That is life. The Christian life is hard. But it's not without hope. And the hope that we have is that we have the means or we have the ability to face the hardships of life the correct way. It doesn't mean bad things, hard things, miserable things. It doesn't mean that's not going to happen to you. The Christian life, in part, means to face the sorrow and the misery of life correctly. And how do we do that? Well, Paul tells us in the section before this, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So 
That's the reality of it. If you are in Christ, you have the power of God in you. You have the unshakable hope in the resurrected Lord Jesus. No matter what happens to you personally, no matter what happens to us collectively. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You have God's word. You have the sacraments. That's what you have. So, yes, life is full of grief and stress, shame, illness, and eventually death. But through it all, we have the power of God at work in us. And that is our hope. That's our strength. That's our source of joy, no matter what you are facing. And I think that's how Paul, how we are able to rejoice in the Lord. Because we rejoice in the one who knows just what you are going through. Who went through it before you. And he has given you the power and the hope to face the road that is set before you. And it's because of that hope that, as Paul says in chapter 4, that you can do all things through Christ. It's he, him, that strengthens you when the road gets dark. His power within you now. That's how we rejoice. That's how we hope in the Lord. So, let's rejoice. Let's hold on to that hope. Let's be strengthened in the Lord Jesus. And let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that, God, no matter what we, seem, what we are facing, no matter how dark it seems or how overwhelmingly stressful, hard our circumstances are, our relationships with other people are, um, God, we uh, have this hope uh, that is ours uh, through Christ. Um, God, that no matter what uh, befalls us, no matter what we face, God, we have the power of Christ in us, and we ask that you help us to believe that more, more firmly, and God, to act in light of that more faithfully. God, this week and in the weeks to come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.